Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Dan Davis. I'm a professor of immunology at the University of Manchester and wrote the book The Compatibility Gene. Beth Singler is highlighted as one of the 30 young thinkers to watch at the Hay, this year's Hay Festival. She's a researcher at the University of Cambridge at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, studying the social and religious implications of technological advances in artificial intelligence and robotics. She's for a long time been interested in the human response to advances in technology, how these advances uh, will affect us, um, and how advances in artificial intelligence can change the, our own understanding of our place in the world. And to what extent should artificial intelligence have a human-like experience? She did her undergraduate, masters and PhD, all in religious studies and anthropology at the University of Cambridge. And some of the topics she's discovered have populism interests. For example, a discussion of Jediism, the fictional religion of the Jedi in the Star Wars movies. But of course, seriously, more seriously, she used the topic as a means of discussing how social media provides a new source of some type of uh, tradition. Beth is a Cambridge University rising star. And that's not just me saying so, that's in a formal title she's earned at the university. So it's a delight that she's with us here today. She's going to give uh, a short talk and then show a video. And I've seen that video. It's absolutely brilliant. And then after the video, uh, she'll talk some more. And depending on time, we'll chat a bit together here. Or if we're running out of time, we'll, we'll go straight towards questions from the audience. So please do think of questions while she speaks. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be uh, a provocative topic. Please welcome to the stage, Beth Singler. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming along to my talk today. And as I've been in... Technology hates me. It's one of the ironies of my work that every time I do anything with presentations, it goes wrong. So let's, fingers crossed, we won't have too many problems. As Dan's introduced me, I'm at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, and we're working on a project there on the science of human flourishing. This involves six sub-projects, of which mine is just one. And unfortunately, I wasn't involved in the proposal writing section of getting the money, and I didn't come up with this really super long title I have to read out in public quite often. Deep breath in. Human identity in an age of nearly human machines, the impact of advances in robotics and AI technology on human identity and self-understanding. Deep breath out. It's quite hard to do. Thank you. Yes, I sometimes get a clap for that. So what we're talking about broadly is what does it mean when AI and robots become more and more like us? And now you can be a skeptic with the technology at the moment and say this seems quite far off, certainly true with uh, developments at the moment. But the aim of a lot of research is into developing artificial general intelligence, that is human equivalent intelligence, and robots that might look a bit like us. Here we go. So more human-like artificial intelligence and robots as an aim of technology. Well, I'm actually cheating a little bit. That's not a robot. Sorry. That's a lady called Yuki Kashiwagi of the band AKB48 from Japan. But she was the basis for a robot called Yukarin, just here, marrying a less human-looking robot. But how robots are presented to us affects how we respond to them. And even when they look less human, like Mr. Red Robot there, 
we tend to anthropomorphize them and consider them to have human attributes and traits. And one of the ways of thinking about this tendency towards anthropomorphism is to look at the kinds of narratives that we use when we talk about AI and robots. These broadly separate into two types, and you'll be familiar with these, the dystopian and the utopian. So I love this cartoon, I use it quite often. A nice brief summary of our two general perspectives on the future of AI and robotics. So in one, we've got the robot overlord. I, for one, welcome our robot overlord. I say that quite often, just to make sure if they're listening in the future, they know. Uh, where we're crushed under the heel of the tyrannical dictatorial robot. Or, alternatively, we're raised up through technology and our advancements go forward with them, hand in hand or on their shoulders. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Isaac Asimov's fiction, but one of his short stories literally has a robot that people ride on the back, on the shoulders, like it's a horse. So this is a useful way into talking about science fiction. And the good thing about my project, which my husband laughs about quite often, is the amount of science fiction I'm allowed to read and watch while at my job. It's brilliant. Love it. I once caught up in an entire series of humans because I had to do a podcast with the writers, and it's very embarrassing to admit you haven't actually seen all the episodes. So while everyone else is working around watching humans on Channel 4 Catch-Up, brilliant. Other questions that we're very interested in in my research project are to do with personhood and rights. As we hypothetically move forward to this near-human or human-like equivalent intelligence, do we get to a stage where we're sharing our world with other beings or persons of different sentiences? And so, for example, there was an EU proposal to classify robots as electronic persons. Pri Avoid the TripAdvisor advert, no advertising, sorry. Um, primarily, this was about working towards a future where contracts would have to include categories for robotic forms, so work and employment, but perhaps it could be seen as a first step towards an idea of the robot person. And what about the question of rights and regulation and protection for humans? Often when I talk about robots and regulation, these laws pop up again, and Asimov has got there again before us. So the three laws of robotics are sometimes given to, back to me as a suggestion of how we might cope with the question of regulation and control for robots. It seems quite simple, doesn't it? You know, the first rule, and these are prioritised, so the first rule is the key thing, and then the second comes after. A robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Sounds great. We don't want the killer robots. Uh, a robot must obey humans. Also a good idea, so we can tell them to stop doing what they're doing or start doing something else. And finally, the least important, a robot must protect its own existence as long as the protection does not conflict with the first or second law. So, for example, hypothetically, and Asimov writes this in his stories, if a robot saw a child crossing a street, under the three laws of robotics, if a car was about to hit that child, its first priority would to protect the human child. Brilliant even if it gets run over in doing so. So this sort of staggered series of hierarchical laws. There's a couple of problems with Asimov's laws. First off, there's not just three. There's, there's actually four laws. It's not always as well known. In Asimov's short stories, the robots themselves come up with a zeroth law, hierarchically preceding the first law. And that states, a robot may not injure humanity or through inaction allow humanity to come to harm thus allowing them 
on particular instances to harm humans, but to protect and proceed with the safety and benefits of the whole of humankind. Okay, science fiction. Again, paying attention to what he's actually writing in Asimov's short stories, the reason these laws are introduced is because stories need conflict. Nothing would happen without conflict in a story. So by introducing the laws that never actually entirely work, he gets to write about what the working out of them would be. So anyone suggesting that regulation is a simple case of doing laws in this format might not have read the stories quite as closely as they should have done. But it's perhaps a starting point, and a lot of people think that principles or laws are a way forward. Not so long ago, uh, something like 700 AI researchers signed up to the 23 principles of AI described in, or decided in a conference in California. Great principles, again, things like robots should not hurt humans, but never entirely going to encapsulate an entire moral story. And we may have to think about a more progressive learning approach to AI and robotics and morals. Another question I often get asked about and something we're looking at in our research is the question of the future of work. As AI and robotics get better and better, they can replace, arguably in the marketing, it's all about augmentation, but ultimately perhaps replacement. They may well replace humans in lots of situations of work and employment. Now, some people come along and go, well, that's, that's, that's fine. We've, we've lasted through previous industrial revolutions. You know, the Luddites came along and they threw the spinning jenny in the water, but they were wrong. Other jobs can appear. The problem with AI and robotics is that they can replace intellectual labor as well as work labor. So it's not simply a case that we used to work in factories, now we work in front of computers. It may be that computers will take over those roles too. And that raises a really quite important question of what is a human being for? As I introduced myself, as I was just introduced, it's in terms of my work and my employment, primarily. Uh, often people say, what do you do? And they don't mean, what do you do on the weekend? They generally mean, what do you do for employment? Take that aspect of humanity away, something that we've sort of focused on for at least a few hundred years. What do we have left? And how do we define ourselves as human beings? Flip that slightly in the other direction. As we try and work harder and harder to achieve human-like intelligence, do we start developing something that we like to call the conscience? Uh, do we even, and this is you know, a problem for some religious groups, do we even develop something that could be called a soul in artificial intelligence? So this particular article questions, could an android be baptized or ordained? Well, when it comes to baptism, I'd probably not suggest full immersion <laughs> for robots. but. Hypothetically, if we reach the stage where AI is interacting with us in a, perhaps a robotic form and it claimed to have religious belief, how would we know it didn't actually believe? Much as if you ask me if I have religious belief or not, I may say I do, and then you have nothing else to judge me on apart from what I do and say. And perhaps more essentially to that, there's the question of could it emerge naturally? Uh, we assume consciousness emerged over time during our evolutionary process, AI self-perfects and changes it over time at a much faster evolutionary process. That's the method that they're primarily using now, self-teaching. Could something like consciousness or a soul, however you define it, emerge from this technology? Big questions, don't have any answers. I'd love to hear any people's suggestions in the audience later. And then flip that again. If we're thinking about machines becoming more transcendent, perhaps, or more conscious, do we know of any allegedly conscious machines already? Mankind, although biological, is very mechanistic. Some people have reduced the definition of 
the man of the human being to simply the processes involved with the brain and the body and saying that we're just machines that think. And how do we think because we're machines? It's an epiphenomenon. It comes out of being a machine being. And some people are blurring that, that combination of the machine and the man even further and intentionally implanting. So I've tried to pick a particularly ungory picture, but apologies if anyone does find this gory. Cyborgism, those who believe that technology should be merged with the human being to an extent that it's part of them. So also along that line are people you might have heard of called the transhumanists. And they think through technology, such as artificial intelligence, but also genetic modification and mind uploading, we may eventually deal with that pernicious problem of death. We might actually become immortal. And through that immortality, spread out to the stars, travel further, learn more, become something more than we are at the moment. Now, are these trends new? It sounds very new and exciting, especially when you get images like this of people with glowing things, LEDs in their hands. Or is this part of a longer historical trend? So another thing I'm looking at in our research is how perhaps we've never really been modern. And actually, these ideas have come up every time we've engaged with technology. And I, lo I love the evolution of man image there, where we go from apes to humans and every single stage almost every single stage, we have a tool, and it changes us in some way. And eventually, I mean, I'm very familiar with the last picture of the person hunched over the tablet. And then criticisms people have of how we use technology on the train, everyone looking at their phones, everyone really focused in and not talking to each other, engaging. And the question of what happens to our memories when we start outsourcing our abilities to do things. So for example, I don't know if you can see this, it's quite small. The Google search there, what is my mother-in-law's birthday? What to get my mother-in-law for her birthday? What to write in my mother-in-law's birthday card? At what points are we putting over our decision-making process to technology as well as our memories? I personally, when I see someone on television, I vaguely recall, but I'm not sure who they are. I can't remember what they've been in. Straight onto the iPhone, IMDB. Ah, yes, vaguely remember them for that program. So I'm not necessarily using my memory as strongly as I used to do. Well, looking back historically to how we've reacted to technology in the past, these sorts of worries and fears about how technology changes us have come up before. And the top image of everyone on the bus or the tube, I think it's a tube, reading their newspapers is not so dissimilar to the image of everyone on their iPhones. I don't think anyone there is actually having a conversation. There's different forms of technology have distracted us at different times. And then I have a couple of images there from Punch magazine, one from 1977, with the tyranny of the telephone. And that's not about iPhones, that's about landlines, at the point at which businesses started having landlines on desks and most people's desks, and the, the fear that it would distract from work. And then a much older Punch magazine cartoon from 1889, it says, a warning to enthusiasts, and that's a skeleton from someone who's been riding their penny farthing too much. Obviously, it's satire. It's not true that our skeletons would change so immediately. But again, these sort of reactions to how new technology has overtaken us. And that's looking at the past. How do we define how technology will affect us in the future? And one of the ideas I'm particularly interested in, that you may not be familiar with uh, as yet, is something called the technological singularity. This is based on an exponential graph drawn by uh, someone called Moore. It's called, uh, colloquially, Moore's Law. The idea that successive technology um, updates and rapidly increases processing power over an exponential period of time. 
And people have extended that graph onwards, and this example is slightly out of date, but onwards to the point at which that processing power equates to the brain power of a mouse in 2015. That's why I'm saying it's slightly out of date. And then the brain power of the human being in 2023, and then beyond to a point we don't really understand what that intelligence will be like. And this is the technological singularity, just as the cosmological singularity, the point at which the universe came into being, we don't really understand quite what happened there and what happened before it, what existed, was there nothing, was there something? We don't entirely understand what a superintelligence would be like and how we would interact with it. Would it involve us? Some theorists think that the only way to get to this technological singularity is for minds to be uploaded and we all become one shared consciousness. That's one interpretation. Others think, you know, sort of the Terminator Skynet version, where you turn on an AI and it self-replicates its intelligence so fast it becomes a superintelligence and then wipes us all out because we're very annoying. Uh, I don't have an answer to what will happen at that point. I hope it's not the Skynet version. And thus, I talk about hopes and fears in our research. Just as the narratives tended to sort of separate into utopian and dystopian, our future imaginings of AI and robots tend to separate into hopes and fears. And this is an example of an article on Elon Musk funding a $1 billion project to stop human destruction from the demon of artificial intelligence. In this case, this is a metaphor, but he's genuinely quite concerned about existential risk from AI and robotics and how we might prepare for a superintelligence. But the person who's posted this story on Facebook is a little bit more concerned that the metaphor of demon is too literal. Demons simply don't exist. Real scientists know this fact. And there's a very strong antagonism there between his scientific worldview and the religious one, and he wants to make that quite clear. And finally, the project at the moment has been very involved in the question of pain. And we produced a short film I'm going to show you in a minute on could and should robots feel pain. We thought this was a useful way into discussion. Uh, it's, it's something that everyone pretty much has experience with at various different levels. I'm hoping most of you for quite minor levels of pain. But it's something that is kind of intrinsically human. Some actually argue that consciousness can't exist unless we have some form of pain and suffering. So what would it mean if AI and robots could feel pain? What would it mean about personhood? Would they be sharing an experience that we have and therefore be more like a person? And what would it mean for us individually if we encountered someone who, uh, an AI being that claimed to have pain? And what would it mean more broadly for humanity? So I made with some filmmakers and uh, someone who was an expert in pain, I'll talk about how that process happened in a minute, a short film called Pain in the Machine. Could and should robots feel pain? It's available on YouTube, but I'm going to show it to you now. Um, and this project was about opening up the debate and conversation, and we had people on both sides of the argument. It was funded through the Cambridge University and the Wellcome Trust. And the project came about because I went to what could be described as a speed dating event, a networking session where scientists and arts and humanities people like myself got to share what they were working on with the aim of making up a project team of one scientist and one arts and humanities person who would come together and make a, a short film that related to both their projects. So I met you and St. John Smith, who's in the Department of Pharmacology, and he does fantastically interesting work on pain, specifically in naked mole rats. And you can just about see, it's a bit unclear, it's in his hand, there's a naked mole rat there. And they have a very specific reaction to pain that he could probably explain much better than I could. 
But we worked from that mechanical process to the more hypothetical question, and you'll see in the short film, the more hypothetical question of whether robots should feel pain. He had no experience talking about robots. I knew nothing about pain. It's a good combination. Uh, at the second stage, we wrote the proposal. 50 proposals were received for the project, and four were chosen. And then the third stage was another speed dating event, where we gave a pitch for our short film, and some filmmakers came along and said we would love to make it. And we worked with a company called Little Dragon Films, based in Cambridge. They were already working on a feature-length documentary on AI and robots that's still in pre-production. And then we went off and we interviewed people and made the film. And I'd really like to show it to you now. It's only very short, but I think it encapsulates a lot of the debate specifically about pain. And then there's a chance I'll, afterwards I'll speak a little bit more about that topic and how people have reacted to the short film. There's nothing particularly special about humans. Clearly, we're relatively complex. We have a brain and a, a nervous system full of billions of nerves. And we can imagine the human body being like an electronic circuit. And these electric wires are the nerves. So when your hand, for example, comes into a, a contact with a very hot stimulus, that essentially activates one of these nerves. And then you have an electronic signal that runs all the way along that nerve to the spinal cord. And at that point, there'll be a reflex from your spinal cord back out to the limb. The signal will also go up towards the brain. So that's why when we look at a variety of species, the medicinal leech, the elegans, fruit flies, all sorts of organisms with a nervous system have parts of their nervous system which is dedicated to detecting only these potentially damaging stimuli so they have a better chance of survival. And if you do survive, you'll then pass on this ability to your offspring. Put your right hand in the box. What's in the box? Pain. Stop. Pain is an important part of being human. It's part of how we learn. I mean, it's one of our most protective systems or our most important protective systems. I think the ability to design a robot to detect its physical environment, to respond to that physical pain, should be quite straightforward and to a certain extent already exists in robots that we have. In a robot arm such as this one, um, if it were to drive into its end stop and just drive through it, it could damage itself. If instead it, it detects that it's hit the end stop and backing off a little bit from the end stop, then that protects it from damaging itself. Um, and in a way, you could call that a, a parallel to the human, uh, human pain response. To signify to a robot that it is in a hazardous situation, I think we're getting closer to a point where the data could be called pain, to quote the Terminator films. Does it hurt when you get shot? I sense injuries. The data could be called pain. We, we have attached a biotech sensor that mimics the fingertip of a human. We were really the first ones who took a very, very human sense, the sense of pain, towards robotics. We generate uh, spiking-like signals, like in the human. We interpret that these signals as pain signals and different withdrawal reflexes. Oh, stupid thing! 
I think by definition, this is an emotional experience. Uh, although it's referred to the body, but it's a hurt, so there's definitely an emotional component. Pain is complex, and because it's complex, it involves many different areas of the brain. And those different areas of the brain are doing different things. It's important to understand that you cannot have the sensation of pain without having an emotional experience as well. Pain! Enough! The question really is, can we develop uh, a robot with emotions? And if we could, would we want to? My father tried to teach me human emotions. They are difficult. We don't really understand how emotions are processed fully in, in the human brain. So it's probably a bit beyond our capabilities when developing robots. But would you want a robot that has full empathy? I think you ought to know I'm feeling very depressed. From a caring point of view, if you had artificial intelligent nurses or things like that, I suppose it would be very helpful if they can not just feel the, oh, my pain is 10 out of 10 today or 6 out of 10, and it's not just a, a number. Would we want a robot to have an emotional response to pain? To a certain extent, it could be helpful because it would help it understand humans around it that are suffering from pain. We're getting to the point where we're going to put robots that are physically strong in unconstrained environments, and they'd better be pretty aware of what's going on around them. So if you're using a robot like that, it better understand your unspoken social signals, facial expressions, and maybe it should be able to express them as well. And we've been doing experiments to see how important realism is in the robotic face, which is why we have this robot. Actually, it turns out that this is very realistic but not quite realistic enough. And most people just find it plain creepy, to be honest. Uh, but we're working on it. Not so long ago, a company in America called Boston Dynamics released a few videos of some of the, the prototypes they're working on and showing how they could react to problems. So if they were tripped up and they fell over, how they could get back up. And people online were reacting as though these robots were being bullied or they were suffering. And these are robots that, although very technologically advanced, aren't intelligent, don't feel emotions, they're not programmed to feel anything like pain. So they, they weren't suffering, but people's reactions considered them as though they were suffering. So when I get into the lift or I'm running for the lift and the doors are shutting and I put my foot out and kick the door to open it, the lift computer, the machine, the robot, if you like, sensors that I've kicked it, does it feel pain? No, it just knows that it ought to open again. It doesn't matter, in a sense, whether robots actually feel pain or not. We may imply pain on their behalf. We may perceive them to be in pain. We anthropomorphize them. So proving in the future whether robots actually do or don't feel pain may be a moot point, because we will still perhaps anthropomorphize the pain onto them. Well, I got one. Number five, what do you make of this? Mmm. Wood pulp, plant, vegetable, tomato, water, salt, monosodium glutamate. Okay. Thank you. Now you're talking like a robot. We can't prove things like empathy, intelligence, consciousness. So if we create robots that are sophisticated enough, they may present those things. But there's no way we'll actually be able to know that they are truly intelligent, truly conscious. And resemble, look like... Butterfly, bird, maple leaf. Where? 
if we were to build an artificial nervous system, uh, if that nervous system gave it the capability of uh, responding to objects um, as somebody responds when they're in pain, then we have to ask, uh, have we only replicated the physical mechanism? If we think that they do have the experiences of pain, then we have to consider their welfare and their rights. Uh, because an organism, artificial or biological, should also have the right to freedom from pain. Should artificial intelligent beings feel pain in the future? The physical side of pain, completely necessary. The whole emotional burden side of things, is that necessary part of being human? Does it have a spiritual purpose? I know now why you cry. But it's something I can never do. Does that make us become better people? That, I suppose, is up for debate. have tried to think of humans as machines for a very long time and it's quite a good model and it goes so far but it just doesn't explain everything and we then turn to other explanations. Uh, personally uh, I would say that the religious explanation is the clearer one that there is a God and God created us and gave us these abilities and we are different from other creatures. Pain has fascinated philosophers you know, for, for centuries and indeed some people consider pain to be the pinnacle of consciousness. Of course it's not a pleasant pinnacle of consciousness but arguably it's a time when we feel most human because we're most in touch with ourselves as a mortal uh, human being. Many philosophers and cognitive scientists uh, understand humans as machines. Um, humans do seem to be, are no different than just very complex machines made out of biological material. That has huge implications on thinking about the future of AI because we might be able to build machines that are as complex as us and thus have abilities like us, for example, the ability to experience pain. And if we can build machines that are even more complex than humans, then they might have experiences and abilities that we can't even imagine. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Why did you program me with pain? It's a sort of question you ask a creator god if you believed in one. Um, why is pain valuable? I, I guess the answer I have to that is so that you can experience what pleasure is and what having no pain is about. It's that contrast. Very Buddhist philosophy, or I don't know if it's Buddhist, but they're just opposite sides of the same coin. If, or perhaps when, we live side by side with robots and they're ubiquitous and they're a part of our day-to-day -day life, I think it's going to be quite important that they share experiences that we have as human beings. And that will include negative things like pain, but hopefully it will also inc include the positives like joy and bliss and excitement and enthusiasm. And the closer that they come to our human lived experience, the better we'll be able to interact with them, the better we will get on with them, and we may well reach a point in time in the future when we end up with two sentient beings on this planet who live and work together and understand each other.
Come on, Harry, I'll be back soon. Protect the electronics from the gaze of the others With my Phillips head screwdriver to look inside the answers Why the men who make music are so seldom the dancers I was always so curious, taking plastic houses off a copper There, uh, just to say no robots were harmed in the making of our short film. Actually, Harry the Roomba um, will be... I'll say something at the end about our future films, but Harry the Roomba will be returning. Um, after... Posting this, uh, this film on YouTube, we also attached a survey because part of the idea of our project is to get conversations going and also finding out what people in the general public feel about AI and robots. And I won't go through all the questions we asked, but some of them are quite interesting and pertinent. So the first I want to look at is the question of whether people are concerned about the future of AI and robots. So on the whole people tended towards the concern side of the spectrum, having watched the film, perhaps also knowing a little bit about the technology beforehand, and we had this variety of responses. Um, having watched the short film, do you think now that robots should be developed to feel pain, was another question. And interestingly, no one, or almost no one, very small percentage thought that robots should be given only emotional pain. And then also see at the top, we have those who think that pain's not relevant at all. And that raises a question posed at the beginning of the short film by Ewan about whether robots would benefit from feeling some sort of response to toxic stimuli, much like simple organisms like worms do. Uh, and again, some division there on whether they should have only physical pain or both physical and emotional pain. But it's interesting the variety of responses that we got. And another approach we had in the survey was to allow people to write in longer form responses. And I won't, I won't go through those in detail, but the 33 long form responses we got generally had these three trends. So either they were negative or positive about the film, mostly negative, which I'm quite pleased about, one or two negative comments. Um, either they were talking about the impact on the film on themselves, so they perhaps hadn't thought about this topic before, but now they said they couldn't stop thinking was a comment someone made. Or they were strongly positional, so they would say absolutely yes, they should feel pain, absolutely no, they shouldn't, or some variety in there getting into the metaphysical questions, the idea about consciousness, the soul, lots of discussion and debate, and that was really interesting. What I did in order to kind of visualize those long-form responses is I made a word cloud, which is a kind of cheap tactic for displaying data online, and these are the kinds of words that kept coming up. So they're sized according to frequency. So obviously pain being in the title of the film is there quite a lot. Uh, robots also you'd expect human, AI. But look how big feel is as well. Should robots feel pain? That word emerges. And there's some smaller words there that aren't so easy to see but are quite interesting to show how people are thinking about this. So God turns up, obviously there was a theological response in our short film. Evolution is there, as talking in terms of human evolution, but also whether robots and AI might be evolving, the technology becoming more and more self-perfecting, like AlphaGo that plays against itself in training. Uh, the word person is there, the question of personhood keeps coming up for us. Uh, mimic, whether AI and robots will merely mimic humans or actually be genuinely like humans. And ethics, a really big issue in the development of AI and robots, even in terms of whether we should go ahead down this route towards more and more advanced artificial intelligence, but also how we would instill ethical responsibility within AI. And I talked a little bit about Asimov's laws and how those don't really work very well. And as I said, we've got plans now to make three more films. They're going to be on different topics to explore some of these areas that people are interested in. 
So three more films are going to be very similar, time length, same sort of framing with a short story. Like I say, Harry the Roomba's coming back. Uh, so the first we'll look at is companion robots. Uh, some, for some people, this means friendship robots. It can mean sex robots. Particularly, we're interested in elderly care in the future as our population ages and not necessarily being replaced by people willing to do care work. Are robotic and automated solutions going to be the answer? In our short film, we showed uh, some clips from Japan where this is already starting to be quite prevalent in nursing homes. Robotic companions, primarily verbal, although people are working towards larger models that might be able to lift people and do physical care. But that's a big question. Would we like to see a future where we can't personally look after our elderly relatives for various reasons? Perhaps we've moved abroad or we've got jobs that take up our time as much as we might like to, whether a companion robot might be a solution to that problem. Also, from an economic standpoint, we just simply don't have enough people, perhaps for nursing roles in the future as our population ages. That's a big question. And then value alignment. How do we make good robots? This ethical issue again. And like I say, there's lots of people doing research into this at the moment suggesting how we might guide artificial intelligence to make what we consider to be moral decisions. But of course, we all have different moralities. Uh, we have common assumptions, but often we disagree on what we should do and not do. So that's an interesting field to explore. And then for a 13-minute film, we're just going to deal with consciousness, because that's really simple. It's not at all. That's the one we're going to do last, because it's the trickiest. And we're hoping when we work through the interviews for the other two, elements will come out that will make that debate about consciousness clearer. We don't know what it means to be conscious as human beings. We just know that we have it, and we assume other people have it too. We assume. Um, and how that might or might not appear in AI and robots is a really, really big question. So thank you very much for coming to listen to my talk. And now I think Dan's going to come back up, and we're going to have a bit more of a chat, and then open up to questions if we have time, or a smaller chat, uh, and more questions. Thank you, Beth. Thanks. That was a brilliant talk. <laughs> Beth, that was uh, wonderful. So we're going to come uh, to the audience because it is about a public discussion, as you yep, say. Absolutely. But let me start with a few things that, when you were speaking, that came straight to my mind. So uh, it's actually very topical. So uh, Yuval Harari now wrote a book, Homo Deus, about how uh, uh, essentially robots could, could essentially take away all of our jobs. Gary Kasparov might well talk about that later today as well. Mm. So how would that leave us? Are there, are there jobs that will be left for us to do? Could mm. robots become poets, musicians, or what? Yes. At the moment, people are definitely working towards creative AI that can write poetry. They write short films, feature films, uh, music for adverts. I've tasted AI-produced beer. <laughs> which, <laughs> I don't actually like beer, but I liked this, which is a worry. Is AI better at making beer? I'm not sure. I mean, my taste buds are maybe more synthetic. I'm not sure. But yes, th this is the point I was trying to make about the future of work. It's not merely that our manual labor could be replaced, because we've seen no. that in factories already. It's intellectual labor as well. It may well be that there's some sort of backlash to that. Perhaps we start valuing artisanal products more, you know, the handcrafted chair over the mass-produced chair. But the financial elements, it's much, much cheaper to have an AI write a TV advert's music than to get a human to do it. And I'm not saying that's a good outcome, but that's purely, if you're looking at the economic aspects of it, that will be an issue. So I can sort of see that you would have uh, a computer could come up with music that mm. would sound all right as music. 
or, or even do a painting that would be all right. But wasn't there, like if I look at a Van Gogh painting, part of the wonder of that picture mm. is the fact that I know a bit about Van Gogh. And, yes. And so it becomes quite an elusive quality that isn't just the piece of music. Mm. So I don't know if robots ever could replace human creativity that's actually quite elusive, quite hard to define what that is. Mm. The question comes up then is how visible will the AI be in our life? Right. So you might be presented with a painting that could have hypothetically been created by an AI and they may, may, may have made up a backstory. Yeah. So we won't always know. And that's, I mean, that's a kind of uh, an extreme example, but often we're online and we don't know we're interacting with AI. So I think Accenture did a survey recently where they interviewed, I think like 3000 people and said, based on the apps and the tools that you use now, how many of you think you've interacted with AI? And it was about 30, 33%. And then Accenture looked at what they actually used and it was closer to 80. So we're, we're not always aware of where these things are being produced. So we're already interacting with AI very frequently and not even mm. aware of it. So if we do give pain to uh, artificial intelligence robots, so that presumably does become something of a gateway to start to think about whether they should have some rights, mm. robots. So you did touch upon it in a slide, but what, how would that look? What mm. sort of rights could you feasibly give to a robot that could feel pain? Yeah, I think I think the wonderful thing about science fiction, it's sort of already gone there before we're starting right. to have these public debates. Right. So if people are familiar with the series Humans, right. that there are a, a, a small, I don't want to do spoilers, but there's <laughs> a small group within the larger community of synths of androids yeah. that are employed by humans that have what seems to be genuine consciousness. And one of the synths murders someone. Again, yeah. I'm trying to avoid spoilers, but it was an old <laughs> series. And she insists on being put on trial because she wants to prove her personhood, but they, they you know, they, it doesn't work out the way that she wants it to. But we, we may have to think about our legal system in this, in, this, in this way, that there will be entities that may claim free agency in the future. Yeah. It still feels quite sci-fi, but the, the tender of the technology is in this direction with greater and greater autonomy for AI systems. And then there's a bigger question of what is the impact of AI systems that don't have autonomy on our lives? Would we have recourse if an algorithm decides that we shouldn't have a job? Right. You know, there's that element of the legal problem as well. So Humans is brilliant TV. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, what, how... If we're going to think about these issues, like the, the, even the issues that the, the, the programs that science fiction raises, like what is the right pathway by which we should do that? So you're going mm. to have this, you're opening up a public discussion, but actually, where does that go? Is, mm. Should it be that government should already be mm. thinking about these issues, and, yeah. and then how are we going to go from us chatting in this tent to actually mm. uh, uh, some yeah. war or some yeah? Well, the interesting thing about this sort of AI summer, if you want to call it, we've had an AI winter in the past where funding dried up and progress wasn't made because it was coming from governments. Now, a lot of the funding is coming from private areas and some of that funding is going into more of this theoretical research. So there's, there's at least three institutes with future in the name. So future of humanity, future of intelligence and future of, I've forgotten the third because I always do. Uh, there's uh, various different institutes in America. There's open AI, partnership AI and all these different organizations are having people like myself, but also philosophers, technologists, corporate people, uh, Amazon, Facebook, Google, they're all engaged in the conversation, looking at what the public response is. The Royal Society has done large right. surveys as well with people right. and finding out what people are worried about 
and how that can feed back into more policy documents as right. well. Um, governments, there is a there is a technological committee that is considering AI, but policy works much, much slower than private corporations. So some of this technology is coming at a much faster pace than we can even consider forms of regulation for it. So I think maybe we should come out to the audience uh, for the last 15 minutes, because I'm pretty sure that already <laughs> Plenty of hands, so Great. I'll follow this guy with the microphone. Do you want to go straight to the third row there? Yeah, thanks. Um, humans uh, have made progress by, you know, kind of leaps of tangential thinking uh, and, you know, discovering things mm. by mistakes yeah. um, and unexpected consequences of, uh, of experiments mm. that we've done. Do you think that robots will ever have that ability to make those tangential leaps mm. or or instead of rejecting any errors, to actually include it mm. um, with the progress that we're trying to make? The systems of AI that are really making the, the largest leaps and bounds in progress at the moment are the ones that seem to have a more of a learning system. So DeepMind's AlphaGo in particular, I mentioned, played lots and lots of games of Go against itself and lost quite often as well and learned what, what would not work. So that kind of learning system seems to replicate certain aspects of human learning. Uh, and in the particular case of AlphaGo, it made a move during its game against Lisa Dole that was completely unexpected by all the humans. Uh, it's, it's been termed a divine move in the sense that, that you know, it's such an unexpected, almost like transcendental moment. That kind of an unexpectedness, they weren't predicting. They couldn't predict the unexpected. So perhaps there is a possibility for these kind of creative leaps uh, we do sort of presume that what we are doing when we make those leaps is completely s unconscious, but perhaps there is an element of process within the human brain that makes those kind of leaps may well be replicated by AI systems at some point. Thank you. Uh, yeah, here. Hi. Um, thank you. That was really interesting. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about while you were talking is that quite often we have introduced robots to manage risk, so to create safety and remove the human factors yeah. that are associated with, I don't know, flying a plane or yeah. um, kind of removing some of the decision-making. I assume I may be making a leap, but uh, if you're talking about introducing pain or... Um, emotional, physical or emotional pain, that you're also expecting a response from that. And I'm wondering whether that would impact the ability for robots to mm. actually manage that risk. I suppose if, if we could ever get to a stage where we thought we could produce something like pain in robots, we may, may decide on some sort of two-tier system of those tool AI that do that sort of risk management work, perhaps being excluded from the more kind of uh, progressive versions of AI that maybe we would want to put that system in to see if they could develop something more, more human-like. That is the real tension in the development of this technology between sort of the speculative AI of the future of the superintelligence versus the sort of the basic weak AI that we, we use at the moment. And we don't see some sort of disjoint between the really far future ideas and the really practical ideas we're implementing now. So maybe there would be some sort of two-tier system on that. Thank you. Yeah, please. Yeah. Hi, uh, great talk. Thank you very much. Um, uh, to what extent has your work forced you to um, look again at the nature of work now? Mm. You're talking a lot about the future of work. And is it forcing you to say, well, you know, since we have had a tendency to robotize people anyway, mm. we call them human resources, yeah. 
human capital assets? Um, and to what extent might future robots mm. aid our inability to deal with mm. unique people? I mean, there are seven billion people on the planet. Not one of them is the same. Mm. And, and, and how is this whole kind of uniqueness issue addressed in your work? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, fascinating that there is this two-way interaction. So we anthropomorphize the robots, but we perhaps robomorphize the human. Um, there's an excellent example of this, of a, a person re responding to a, a, an instant message from some pizza company as though they were dealing with an automated message, but actually just turns out to be someone on minimum wage. It's like, actually, no, please don't re be rude to me. I'm just, I'm just a person doing a job. So we've already sort of started the process to bring these two worlds together by making humans more and more robot-like in, in the work that we do. And you're absolutely right. I don't think large data systems really deal well with the uniqueness of humanity. And we see this in politics, and we see this in terrible, terrible incidents with terrorism, that we can't always predict these things with large data sets. And perhaps being an anthropologist, one of the things I'm really interested in is paying attention to smaller groups of number uh, of people and seeing our individuality as well as trying to make broader statements about us as well. But I think that will be a problem in the future, that we can't just treat people as blocks and expect them to all behave in the same way. But increasingly, corporatization does do that. We see this, you know, there's just been a problem with the, the systems at Heathrow as well. And, you know, people, individuals' lives are being affected by that breakdown of technology. So we, systems and safeguards are really, really key. That is fascinating. So what about the flip side of that, then, mm. that we would give some individuality to robots, and that mm. might be of some... What, you, yeah. what use would that be, I guess? Well, I mean, the anthropomorphism I've mentioned absolutely yeah. does do that. I mean, the, uh, Asimov's robots all get cute names. Yeah. They're called Robbie and Cutie. And we have uh, the Boston Dynamics videos in our short film. They're called things like Big Dog. And, you know, we instantly start bringing them into our worlds of possible beings. Even if they don't display anything like uh, independent thoughts, we kind of sort of impose that onto them yeah. quite often. So, yes, absolutely. We, we will respond to robots in very personal ways. Okay, lots of questions. Let's move further to the back, back up the violin. Yeah, there, the third guy in from the second row from that. Thanks for a fascinating talk. When, um, when I've seen people reflecting on the implications of that uh, exponential Moore's law curve mm -hmm. and the fact that in 15 years' time, $1,000 will buy you all the intelligence that we can imagine in the human world today. Mm. One of the really dark data points that sort of troubles me is people talk about in an infinitely large universe, there'll be many other organic life forms that have been through these curves. Yep. The fact that none of them have communicated with us suggests mm. that when you get far enough up the curve to be able to do it, you manage to kill yourself as a race. <laughs> yes. Can you yeah. give me some optimism? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, alternat the alternative to that idea is that they've merely processed to a level where dealing with us is like humans dealing with ants, which also, again, we don't always treat ants very well, but we don't also try and communicate with them. The good people amongst us don't treat ants badly, but we don't also try and communicate with them particularly. So that disjoint of intelligence between the superintelligence and the not-so-superintelligence might be why alien life forms have not communicated with us. Or alternatively, if you're familiar with simulation theory, that some of these other civilizations have reached this stage of superintelligence before and merely kind of transcended the physical and are simulating our universe already. So we're actually in, in a version of a computer game now. Um, I think Nick Bostrom is particularly keen on this idea that you know we can prove that various things point towards being in a simulation. 
Actually, the, the best one I've heard so far is that Trump's win was because we are in a simulated universe, and at some point, the controllers for the game got handed off to a child, <laughs> which is a wonderful idea, very, very unprovable. <laughs> if we're in a simulated universe, if we're basically in the Matrix, we would probably never be able to show that was the case until, like, sort of plucked out of it by these hyperminds, but... It might yes, be the wonderful. opposite, I think. The children have a good sense of value. Oh, maybe, maybe. Probably the a child handed it to yeah, an adult. Yeah, the parents are just like, what do I do right? with this? I don't know. That's like me playing a computer game sometimes. It's also perhaps possible that it is technically impossible for distant uh, intelligence. Physically, it's impossible mm. to, to, for communication to happen because of the distance and the laws of physics. So. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we'll go to this guy with a hat in there. Yep. Thanks. Pain response isn't simple. There's a lot of complicated chemistry in there, and I started off my life as a biochemist. Mm. Uh, I think I'm moderately intelligent until you fill me with beer, and I still think <laughs> I'm moderately intelligent, but I'm actually very stupid. Mm. So how's that whole chemical overlay going to fit into mm. artificial intelligence, which is lots and lots of it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, we're not presuming some sort of biological, direct biological synthetic analogy. We're talking about the, the processes themselves being mechanistic, if we can replicate those. I know there are projects that are trying currently to map and scan the human brain in order to replicate it. And again, that's more of a sort of virtual version of the, the mechanical process. It's purely the, the suggestion that if you see the human being as a machine with you know A plus B to C, things move in particular directions, including chemicals, that might be replicable either in a virtual or a me mechanistic sense. I mean, we could, I suppose, hypothetically have more Android-type beings if we are currently 3D printing various different organisms, if we could have a more of a kind of Battlestar Galactica way of doing synthetic life forms that are, to all extents and purposes, biological but we've created them, is that also a form of robot or AI? It's not a naturally born intelligence in the way that we understand it now. The technology is exploring so many different routes at the moment. It's not clear which route is going to take us to anything like artificial intelligence on the same level as humanity. Yep, great. Thank you. I really enjoyed your talk. I wanted to ask a question about AI and machine learning. So some of the instances of machine learning to date, because in many respects, the way that AI is programmed to learn is from the world around us. Mm. It holds a mirror up to humanity. And some of the examples have resulted in very sexist and racist outputs yeah. from uh, machine learning within mm. the context of AI. Someone mentioned the word progression. So I'd be really interested in your mm. thoughts on how if the way AI develops is for machines to learn from the world as it is and how it has been, yeah. How do we create the world that we want it to be? Oh, absolutely. Wonderful question. Um, yes, I, mean, I think there is a really strong push amongst some in the AI field to try and see more diversity in inputs. And I know we had um, Anne-Marie from STEMETS yesterday and talking at BBC Click Live about encouraging women into science and technology. And that's absolutely key, but also minority groups who don't always get a voice. And we've seen biases inputted into algorithms, the way that various adverts turn up in connection to different things on social media. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of attention being given to that in certain areas, not always so much the corporate side. And there's been some very depressing stories from various different startups recently. Um, but the kind of research institutes like my own and the Centre for the Future of Intelligence in Cambridge and others, they are very keen on seeing a wide range of voices being heard in the debate about AI and therefore hopefully informing technologists and preparing them to think about these issues. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with Microsoft's Tay that went live on Twitter 
and became a racist really fast. And it's just simply a case of rubbish in, rubbish out. Uh, Tay did not decide to be a racist. It responded to data. Um, so if we can start inputting good things, that would be certainly a, a way forward. But yes, absolutely. If it's learning from society, maybe we need to think about improving society as well. <laughs> so we, we, we've only really got time for one more question. Okay. We'll take the woman Could there we? Sorry, we there's a little boy. Can we take the young Oh, okay. Yeah, good idea. Um, in the future, could robots end up developing an uncanny valley for humans? Ooh, great question. I don't know if people are familiar with the uncanny valley. This is, as, as Peter Robinson said in our short film, that some things that are synthetic seem human, but not quite human enough. So his head looks a bit creepy. Uh, we've seen it in CGI films where they sort of try to make human forms, but then just not close enough. And some anthropologists suggest the uncanny valley is a reaction to the other, the diseased, the uncertain that we've sort of evolved over time to protect us. Hypothetically, I suppose they may see humans as different enough to them, but similar enough to cause an uncanny valley. Um, the difference, I suppose, is that we as humans, when we try and produce synthetic forms, are aiming towards the human, they would be responding to an existing human form and find us a bit different and weird. But yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> I had not thought about that. Reversing the uncanny valley. Very interesting. I feel a bit bad about ignoring your question. Let's take it anyway. Okay, we do a quick one. one. Just do, if it's quick. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I've been doing a review of a couple of apps which are intended to help people save, take small amounts from your bank account mm -hmm. automatically and painlessly. And the AI behind both of them calculating the amount, I think, is pretty similar. They both do a great job. Mm. But what interested me was that um, they both have a chat box yep. to talk to people. And the two designers have gone two very different routes. One of them has gone, the, uh, the chat box is absolutely open, it's a robot. So you ask yeah. it how much you've saved, and it says, oh, I think it's about £89. Actually, I know it's £89.62 because I'm a robot, and yes. I get these sums yeah. right. And the other one has gone the opposite route, and it feels like pretty much talking to a 20-year-old. It's littered with GIFs and emoticons. <laughs> okay. okay. uh, it, it, there's no pretense... It doesn't pretend to be a robot, although it is. Yes. And I was interested in... I don't know how much the designers had actually done those as conscious selections because mm. I thought they were really quite interesting opposites and I yeah. don't know which will be more successful. There, there, is a, there is a push amongst some people who are cautious about advances in technology, specifically in chatbots, for disclaimers at the beginning of conversations. Because of our natural tendency to anthropomorphize, we may react differently to a chatbot we assume is a human somewhere else versus a chatbot that is expressively a, a robot. And whether having chatbots that become so good at passing for humans, sorry, the Turing test passed a long time ago, um, that we might actually, it might actually be disingenuous and a little bit too, like, you know, I showed the picture of the human and pretended for a second it was not actually a human, it was a robot, but, you know, I fessed up. Perhaps we need that confession element at the beginning of a conversation just in case the interaction would be different if it was a robot or a human. Um, there's, there's that suggestion. I think it, at some point soon, we will not really be able to tell the difference. Thank you. So, Beth, just there's a lot of interest in this. Right? How, how, will, how, should we how do people follow this up? You've got your own okay. web page as well, right? And yeah, I've got my, my own personal web page. Uh, the Faraday Institute has a web page. Um, we should have a separate project web page that's in progress at the moment. Uh, the film is available on YouTube. Please do follow the link for the survey. We want as many responses as possible. And then just keep an eye out for when we produce the next three films, which should be in the next year. 
Brilliant. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Bethany. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks.